Hello from the At The Flicks review team. Before we start the show, I would like to bring an ongoing charitable event to your attention. Now, a good friend of mine is currently walking Route 66 in the Cotswolds. I'll say that again. He is walking the famous American road, Route 66, in Gloucestershire, England. Is he lost? You are forgiven for thinking my friend Neil Tuckwell doesn't have a sense of geography. This is, in fact, a virtual walk via a mobile phone app of 2,280 miles. Neil's target is to complete this walk, being undertaken in sections within a year. Now, you may ask, why on earth is he doing this? Quite simply, to raise as much money as he can for the British Heart Foundation and Cancer Research UK. If you believe, as I do, that this is a noble and worthy cause and want to donate, then just go to justgiving.com, when on the webpage, search for Neil Tuckwell, and you'll see two options on screen, one for donations to heart research and the other to donations to cancer research. Thank you for listening to this worthy message. And Neil, good luck to you from all the review team. Yeah, good yes, luck, sir. Neil. Good luck, mate. Oh, good grief. Graham, I guess you can use this app to walk one of Dune's deserts. <laughs> And, and Neil, perhaps spend a month or two in a haunted house. Now that I would also sponsor. Oh, anyway, shit. enough dreams. On with the show. <laughs> Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. Welcome to our latest review show. This month our reviews include Black Widow, F9, The Fast Saga and In The Heights. Oh, and British film Brighton. After that, some bad news for you. Jeff is doing the quiz this month. Don't say you haven't been warned. Many people have already contacted me saying how they can't wait for my questions, Neil. <laughs> Many. You're behind the curve again. <laughs> That's why you took that job as Bodger Johnson's test and trace advisor. <laughs> Darren's you... dash this month includes the Fear Street trilogy, Freaky and Dinner in America. As always, we give a shout-out for the Listener of the Month. This month, we say hello to Graham Hills, someone who the Appaflix team has known for many years and who, amazingly, still wants to listen to us. Thank you, Graham, for your support and also for the help you've been giving to our various Facebook exploits. Enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Now, I haven't got a rant this month, listeners. I'm hey! disappointed. But I want to share a thought with you oh, and God, the rest no. of the team. Now, recently we spoke to Cheltenham International Film Festival founder Leslie Sheldon, and he raised an interesting point. He's noticed that film studies are not covering many of the older classic films. Now, this is something that we've spoken about before on air with people like Adil from Pulp Serial and director Phil Stubbs, who also shared this concern. So, in true Sherlock Holmes, if he was Welsh, style, I went and did some investigation. I was surprised and more than a little disappointed in what I found. If you take any night on UK TV and look at the Freeview channels, and indeed some of the pay channels, there's a dearth of films before 1990. With the notable exception of Talking Pictures, nice one, there are very few older films being shown. With films disappearing at an alarming rate, 
are we heading to a time with such classics as It Happened One Night or the original Scarface and never to be seen again? Now, I grew up with a wider range of movies on just three channels back in the 1970s than we have now. Guys, what do you think? Is this something that we should be worried about? You can sit this one out, Frank, over in the States. I know your lady friends believe the Matrix sequels are very old movies. <laughs> All right. I'm in real trouble there. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. I agree with Jeff on this one. That's got to be a first time for everything. I remember when I saw the British premiere of It Happened One Night back in the 1930s. Thanks, Jeff. You took me along because I was too young and needed an older, responsible adult. Is that right? And realized what an absolute joy it was. There I was, sitting in the cinema, <laughs> gas mask in my lap, hoping we wouldn't get bombed. It's how everyone should see movies. It adds a real tension. Even to comedies like It Happened One Night. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. What a load of old twaddle that is. Hi, my name is Neil. Yes, there should be lots more older t films on TV, black and white and foreign language movies every night. Film heaven instantly. The iPlayer does uh, have a whole selection of older movies available. And I think the British Film Foundation has, I think it's only £5 a month and you can get tons of these films yeah, that uh, are available from there. So, yeah, absolute film heaven. Hi, my name's Phil. You can find out more about my film tastes via my blog page on philthebearblog at wordpress.com. As for old movies, I definitely think it would be a shame if people don't have access to them. But on the flip side, I'm more interested in how you would actually spark the interest in someone who's you know, born after the year 2000, who has access to all the streaming services in the world, and then say to them, but do you fancy watching this black and white film that's got the credits at the front of the movie? I mean, I struggled to get my kids to watch E.T. recently because they'd never heard of it and they wanted to watch some stuff on the Disney Channel. Right. Mm. Hang on. Just before we move on there, I, I'll say this, right? We review a film this month, and if the choice was having to watch that film again or some crap from the 1940s, the 1940s win every time. Darren, over to you. Hi, my name is Darren, and to know more about what I'm watching, you can follow me on Twitter at Dazza Loves Movie. Uh, without the S. And if you want to read my blogs, you can find those at halfguarded.com. Now, I've got to say, this is a bit different for me because uh, Jeff has raised an actually interesting point for once. And the thing is, this is something... <laughs> yep. And and the thing is, this is something I've thought about for, for a long time. And I think it actually goes beyond what's been shown on TV because I just wonder uh, if younger people, the next generation, teenagers, whether they're actually bothering to watch what's on TV. The thing is, when when I grew up, I had three TV channels and, and later four TV channels. This was before the uh, video recorders. So if I wanted to watch uh, a film, had to go with watch, what, whatever was on the schedule. But that was great because because of that, I was actually watching a large, broad um, variety of movies. I was watching westerns. I was watching old black and white movies. I was watching comedies. And because of that, that really did shape me being open to so many films and being introduced to so many films. So I, I, I knew who Jimmy Cagney was, who Humphrey Bogart was. And, and, and it was great. But nowadays, and again, I don't th think it matters what is being shown on TV. People have so much choice now, literally, on their remote control. They can watch what film, whatever is their taste, whenever they want. 
are people actually going to have the incentive to watch the older movies or are they just going to die out? You know, with teenagers going to think, I'm going to watch Casablanca or Magnificent Seven when they can basically, you know, just watch something from like, you know, from the past 10 years, which is means more to them. I mean, even films like in the 70s, I mean, anybody who was born after 1995, go out of the way to watch The Graduate or All the President's Men. I do wonder if we're going to get to that stage where basically sort of like, you know, films from a certain period are just basically not watched anymore. I really do hope I'm wrong, but when I think back to, to me as a kid, I wonder if I'd have been watching all the Pink Panther movies on um, on a Sunday night, if I'd have had access to all the Star Wars movies and all the Pixar movies with Disney+. Plus. And I think it's a really interesting conversation and more than we've got time for, but I would like to know either people sort of in the um, in the 20s or before that or people who have got kids like you know like phil's been talking about just now it's something that concerns me but is it is it something that's really going to be that surprising and i think it's a really interesting discussion yeah i mean but, my kids only watch youtube and streaming services they don't watch tv but that whole thing of like having a tv guide and all that sort of stuff that that doesn't apply to them they're not interested press a button and watch what you want to watch and nothing with adverts and all that sort of stuff. And when I think mm. back as well, a few um, seasons of movies like uh, what we used to get on Drum with Alex Cox on BBC Two, when he'd be showing like mm. um, strange and, and weird cult movies and really sort of little known ones and stuff like that, but really inspired me to basically sort of seek out sort of you know, more and more interesting films. And they don't seem to have that, or if they do, the sort of films uh, they're done on streaming services. For a start, I don't think there's that community of people watching you know, films at the same time or on television. But again, you know, are, are people going to be sort of open-minded enough to sort of seek out some of these, you know, the films from like the um, between the sixties and the two thousands? I think both you and Darren are right. We need to come back to this and look at this and see what we can do to mm. keep the flame alive. I think yes. people who listen to this podcast will be film geeks, even if you're a film geek. You know, the certain films of a film geek is going to be sort of like. Um, uh, sort of like you know Casablanca, that that's you know uh, and films like that. But then when you get like your really lesser known films, like say something like um, Saturday Night Sunday Morning, Ooh. Y- y- people are sort of born in the twenty first century. Where where are they going to basically give that a try? I was spe- I was speaking to Jeff and he said that he knows some people who do film studies, and, and they're not doing like you know the yeah. sort of older films and, and classics, you know, and it's. And, and, you know, because they're sort of like the mm. new classics are starting to be stuff from the 90s. I've just put a film list together for a student, taking in five films from every decade from the 1920s on up to the end of the last century. And I know, talking to her, that most of those films she hadn't seen and some of them she hadn't even heard of, which I find really scary. If you think about it, though, you mentioned the 20-year-olds. Like, If you're 20 years old, you weren't born when The Matrix came out. So, you know... <laughs> Okay. Okay. No, I, I think we need to come back to this. Yes. Yeah. So what do you think, listeners? Should there be more accessibility to older films or should TV and streaming companies just show more recent fare? What are your thoughts, Mr. Hills? You are in the same age bracket as us? Well, that's what our Graham told me to say. Oh, now. Oh, God, Graham, do we have to? Yep, I'm afraid we do. We all voted for Jeff to do this month's quiz. At least that's what Jeff told us. But before we hand over to him, let me give you the answer to one question which the team couldn't answer last month. 
My question was, in John Hughes' 1985 The Breakfast Club, assistant principal Richard Vernon says, It is now 7.06. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to think about why you are here, to ponder blank. And the answer was, the error of your ways. Nobody got that. I hope somebody out there listening to the show did. Right. Back to Jeff, who is jumping up and down, ready to go. Certainly am. <laughs> Not sure if that's to give us the quiz or to visit the restroom. Actually, I know the answer to that one. His long-suffering wife has said that he has been busy for days working on these questions. Given that this quiz has made Jeff's family happy while he's been quiet for once, I have made the theme for this month's quiz, Ask the Family. Great British quiz show. I mean, I'm really happy to be allowed to do this quiz this month. Quite excited. It's like winning a penalty shootout, although I'm sure you guys don't know anything about that. But, you know, hey, what can I say? Yes, (laughs) you've said enough on it already, Jeff. Moving on. Anyway, I've got four fantastic film questions. And I know Phil likes it when I do random, so I've done really random this time. Oh, God, no. (laughs) So if you can't answer it, it goes to our listeners. So four questions. Question one. What connects the following film? The Cotton Club, Fatal Attraction, and My Cousin Vinny. The Coppola family. Incorrect. Is it one of the Coppola families? No. No idea. Absolutely no idea. Is it anything to do with Thank God It's Friday? No. (laughs) Who's worth a try? I'm completely stumped. Is it anything to do with a sink? Nope. Okay. No, no, it's nothing obscure. Nothing obscure like that. Okay, the one that goes to our listeners. That's going well, Japs. Question two. How many films did the Mel and director Richard Donner officially make together? Seven. Incorrect. Um, Four. Incorrect. None. So, how did he do the Lethal Weapons? Yeah, he did the Lethal Weapons, yeah. So, did he do all four of them, or did he just do, like, the first one or two? He did all four of them, I'll give you that. Okay. But he did one before that with him, because that's where he met Mel. Five. Yeah, six. You've had a go. Uh, Phil wins. It is six. Yay. It is the four lethal weapon films, The Conspiracy Theory and Maverick. Okay. I watched, I watched Maverick at the cinema when I was about 12. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Phil. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Right, question three. You know, you should all be psyched after that. Can you name James Dean's three films? Giant, Rebel Without a Cause. Cause and East of Eden. Hey, there's no stopping you lot, is there? That's two mm. questions, there's only one going. Right, okay, final question. Which member of the classic Thank God It's Friday cast... Oh, <laughs> no! God almighty. ...later found fame singing one of the biggest hits from the movie Top Gun? Phil, this is your... I know, I love Top Gun. I've got a theme tune going around in my head right now, but I don't know who sang it. The Banco Berlin. Yep. It's taking my breath away, isn't it? That's I've literally just been humming it and I got to the chorus. (laughs) (laughs) 
What was her Terry name? Nunn. God. Yes. Terry Nunn. Hey, there we hey. go. Hey. Terry Nunn played one of the two underage girls trying to sneak into the club in Los Angeles. Right, totally good. But, yeah, so not bad, actually. Three out of four, and one open to, to the listeners. Thank you for all of that, and um, for those that answered. So let's see who won, who won overall then. So, Darren, you got one? Yep. Phil, yep. you got one Thanks and a half, Google. and Graham, you got a half. Poor Neil so, on Neil Point again. Does that mean you're the winner again? Really? No, no. Good old Neil, <laughs> eh? Put him into a quiz like that. He sweats more than Bodger Johnson with a four-piece jigsaw puzzle. (laughs) (laughs) I would say thank you, Jeff, but I'd be lying. Anyway, anyone else want to do the quiz next month? Uh, Please, no, no, no. I'll do it. Okay. After all that, (laughs) I think we need some light relief. I said, light, Neil. <laughs> so, what better place to start than with the latest from Pixar called Luca. This is going to be the best summer ever. We'll ride down every road. See the whole world together. It'll be amazing. <laughs> One thing. <sighs> Whoa. No one can find out. Please don't take my sunshine away. Where did you boys say you were from? <laughs> Just a heads up. As with Soul, Disney have released the animated Pixar feature Luca director streaming. Luca, voiced by Jacob Tremblay, is a teenage boy growing up in Italy in the late 1950s. Except Luca is no ordinary boy. He's a young, timid sea monster, living with his family just off the coast, avoiding the real horror, humans. Then he meets another teenage boy called Alberto, voiced by Jack Dylan Grazier, who is much more adventurous than him. Together, the two travel to the surface where, when dry, they magically become human. Their plan is to mingle in the local town of Porto Rosso, where they have dreams of getting a Vespa and traveling the world. However, even in the ideal of rural Italy, secrets have a way of being revealed. Phil, that's two in a row for Pixar on streaming. Do you think they should have been released in cinemas first? And if so, why? Well, of course, I always have a preference for watching in the cinema, but I actually posted in my review about how perfectly timed this film was for my family. The Sunday that it was released, it was released Friday, I think, and on the Sunday we watched it. It was a really miserable, dull and drizzly day. We didn't want to go anywhere. This bright and beautiful film was absolutely the perfect pick-me-up for all of us to sit and watch in the lounge. As for if it should have been in the cinema, I think so, because... It is a great film. I really loved it. Perhaps that's the perfect storm that coloured my perspective because I watched it, you know, in that sort of environment and we enjoyed ourselves so much. 
But I keep hearing comments from people saying that this is a, a lesser known Pixar film. And I have to say, I completely disagree. I, I loved it. It's a quaint little story of a summer friendship, but there's so much packed in. There's a family message pers- you know, to it, as there always is with Pixar. But there's a really amazingly deep world that they created. So there's themes of friendship, growing up, feeling different from others, how families come in different shapes and sizes. There's racism in there, and it's all gently simmering, and it's not thrust upon you. It's not like a moral message film. You know, they're they're just sort of under the surface for you to pick up on. And then in terms of the deep universe that they've created, you've got fish that behave like sheep because Luke is essentially a shepherd underwater. You've got film posters on the walls that look like your strange uncle who lives in the deep, and a cat that can definitely sense you're actually a fish. And it just gives you like, there's just such a warmth and humor throughout. And we were all completely engaged. My kids loved it. My kids absolutely adored the cat, by the way. As you would expect from Pixar, the animation is sumptuous. You would definitely want to go on holiday in Porto Rosso. Hmm, Um, And the designs of the sea monsters, I thought were fantastic. And the transitions when they were jumping in and out of the water, I thought were just brilliant. I loved it. I'm interested in you saying that, you know, people have said to you it's a lesser known Disney film. Do you think Disney didn't promote this enough? Um, I don't think so, actually. I mean, because I was aware of it, but then its actual release kind of snuck up on me. Um, I'm normally the sort of person who'd watch, you know, this sort of film on the day of release, certainly if it was at the cinema. I don't think it got the sort of advertising that the likes of Black Widow or the likes of Soul got when mm. Soul came over came on at Christmas. Interesting. Graham? I, I'm glad your kids enjoyed it. While I was watching it, I thought, oh, when my kids were little, they would have absolutely loved this. It was just an absolute delight. It's beautifully animated. It's a little gem of a movie. Uh, it's a slick little morality tale on accepting differences and working hard together to overthrow the reign of terror, as uh, the lead ca- uh, female character calls it. Okay, it doesn't have the depth and range of Pixar at its finest. There's not much here for adults, but the children will have a blast with this one. And um, I just thought it was a great little film, just absolutely fabulous. Uh, some of the f- the scenes just felt to me like Pixar is showing off. Oh, oh, look at how well we can do water effects. And here's the sea lapping up on the shore at sunset. You know, just technically remarkable. I also loved the mouth animation. They'd done something very different with the mouth animation this time. It was very cartoony and the characters had massive teeth and it looked, it just made it more fun. The villain was great. <laughs> he was yeah. not too scary for the little ones. And the central uh, character of uh, Julia, was it, played by Emma Berman, uh, she was so wacky and fun and great voice work. The icing on the cake, Sasha Baron Cohen as Uncle Hugo from the deeps, which he was just great. (laughs) And he has has his own little piece at the end, post-credit. That was just great. This movie just felt light and airy. The music was excellent and really evoked that small-town Italian fishing village vibe. Yeah, it's a really solid piece of work and a wonderful school holiday film. I just loved it. 
You, you said earlier there that it's more for the kids than for yeah. the adults. What is it that, in your opinion, is missing from some of the Pixar classics? Well, I think what was missing from this one is you didn't have a, a fork come to life and then have an existential crisis. You know, <laughs> you know, so that level of depth and interest and where you're, where as an adult, you're actually going, oh, actually that relates back to that piece earlier. And that's, oh, right. Okay. That's a piece of philosophy and all of the stuff that Pixar does so well with things like soul and inside out and yeah, obviously toy story and things like that. We have this other thing going on in the background, which the kids never spot. You didn't have so much of that. Yes. Most adults will see immediately the racism uh, element to it. And most adults will see the importance of family and hard work and striving and being a team player and working together to achieve your goals and why school is important. But that's all surface level. There's no sort of depth to it. So I think it is a, it's a great romp of a film. It, it looks stunningly beautiful, but it doesn't mm. have that existential angst that uh, poor Woody goes through. Okay. Thank you. Neil? Um, I think my review probably echoes Phil's in that I watched it when it was boiling hot and I really didn't want to sit and watch a film, but I had to, to review it. Um, I left it too late. Oh, I it's such have a bloody it. challenge, isn't it? I should have watched it. <laughs> I should have watched it earlier, but uh, yeah, you know, the fish out of water coming of age tale, excuse, excuse the pun, the similarities to Monsters Inc., Finding Nemo, Studio Ghibli's Ponyo, Shark Tale. There's a lovely recreation of the 1950s Italian fishing village. It's lovely, beautiful. And there's an exciting wacky races style race. Um, and there's Dick Dastardly in there as well. The animation is stunning, as has been said before, and so much detail. Uh, it lacks some inventiveness of the, some of the Pixar's greatest hits, gripped his light, but Pixar have done a lot worse than this. Uh, there are other friendship matters, bullying and racism are bad storylines. Younger viewers obviously will like it. It feels a bit light. The younger voice actors are excellent, American accents notwithstanding. And I thought Marco Baricelli is a standout as the one-armed fisherman. I thought he was wonderful. But as I say, Pixar have done a lot better. That said, it's well-meaning, lively, fun, very funny in places, and it's a lot better than Fast and Furious 9. But I know it's a low bar. Very low. You know Dick Dassedly has turned up in a film recently, don't you? Uh, no. Really? Yes, he's in Scoob, as voiced by Jason Isaac. Oh, for goodness <laughs> sake, I'm not exactly <laughs> going to be watching that, am I? Oh, I don't know. It's better, it's better than some other animation films I could mention. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I, I've, I've got to admit, when I first saw what this was about, I, I felt like rolling my eyes because it's yet another coming-of-age Pixar movie all about a kid finding their own identity in a heartwarming feel-good quest where we learn that the tough times in life shape us to be who we really are. And yeah, I went into it. It's quite cynical. And what would you know? Disney go and bloody win me over yet again. Um, I came <laughs> totally invested in this movie. I thought it was heartwarming. And at the end, I ended up being moved to tears. Those tears in my eyes, genuinely. And it just was a real lump in my throat moment. And the, the fact is that Pixar do this stuff really, really well. They've got this really good knack of having really strong messages 
and wholesome messages in the films, but without bashing you over the head with it. They basically tell the story. They don't lecture you. You get the story through the characters and what they go through and, and through the story. That is and a good it, point, though. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah, yeah, that and, is and, a and good in, point, actually. Yeah. It's not preachy, is it? No. no. And, and it's, it's basically the, the whole idea is it won't, it won't the world be a nicer place if, if this rather than you're, you're really bad for have, for allowing this to happen and you need to change sort of thing. It, it's an idealised view, but it's like a, you know, a good message for younger kids. I mean, there's, there's lots to get your teeth into here. We, you know, there, there was the racism bit, the, the prejudice about people who who look different to you and who you're scared of, and also people have a lifestyle that you don't agree with. But, but the thing about this film, for me, the, the big thing was, was the metaphors to coming out. I thought that was you know really strong throughout the movie, or basically having to yeah. hide who you are. I mean, it's no that little bit at the end where the two old ladies who basically been spent the entire film just with each other, suddenly turned out that they were sea monsters mm. as well, and they sort of came out. You know that that was not <laughs> that was not an accident. That little metaphor that was like you know really striking, and and uh, I, yeah. I found that bit really funny. And it's and it's funny because I didn't really realise this until Graham said that the, the, this is a film it doesn't cater to adults you know a lot of kids films mm. now they feel that to get the audience the, the adults enjoying it that they have to do sort of gags that go over the kids heads you know like with Peter Rabbit the stuff that's gamed of this and this everything in this was geared towards the kids even the um in the humor and I, I've got to say I, I really like the humor I was actually laughing at the bits with the with the parents where they were going through the town looking for Luca and they were shoving yes. kids into the fountains and find, try and find ways to you know get water on the kids because that would basically reveal them to be a sea monster I actually thought that was genuinely funny given that the film looked absolutely wonderful i mean the scenery the, the oceans it just absolutely was and one bit that i thought was really striking is when luca's identity is revealed and the shading sort of goes over this like a black filter so so this like cute character that we've that we've been seeing everybody else sees him as something really really threatening i thought that was really effectively done but you know there's a reason why disney and, and pixar you know have the success that they are it's because that when we do stuff like this it's really really great and even though they follow a yeah. lot of the fam familiar beats, they always manage to do it in a setting or with characters that make it feel really fresh. And yeah, I'm, I'll I'll say this this film absolutely won me over. I've got to be honest, the coming out metaphor went completely over my head. And now oh, you say the two, it. the two old ladies, that's what I, I thought. Oh. Yeah, and no, I didn't see that yeah. at all. And the, the sea monsters as well, they had a sort of a little bit of a rainbow type colour to them. You know, but that, that sort of, yes. you, you know, it, it was, I'm not really Damn suffering, it. but there was they? a real, yeah. yeah. Nice one, Darren, I missed well, that. Well spotted, mate. Yeah. And yeah. overall, I think it's great to see something original from Pixar again. I think they spent too much time in the last decade on those inferior sequels. Mm -hmm. I mean, prior to that, their animation quality and their layered screenplays was something you look forward to every summer. Now, with Luca, I have script issues, which has been mentioned already uh, by others, but the animation, and again, it's been said by others, is breathtaking. The depiction of a 50s Italian coastal town is simply stunning. The attention to detail is transfixing. It brings to mind so many of the Italian neorealist films, like The Bicycle Thieves that Neil made us watch last year, <laughs> even though that's in black and white. That is, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right on that one. Yeah. Yeah, the visuals are so good, they almost distract from the script weakness, almost. It is, pardon the pun, a fish-out-of-water story which deals with racism and bullying, 
but not coming out, which I missed. Mm. Yet it doesn't have the feeling of originality about it. The lead character are engaging, but the bully Urkel is just a cipher. We've seen it so many times before. Mm. To be honest, and I'll agree with Neil on this one, my favorite character was the one-armed fisherman, Massimo. There's a real character arc with this suppressed supporting character. And also watch out for that funny cameo from Sasha Baron Cohen. We could have a surrealist series of shorts just for that character alone. Yeah. <laughs> I'd watch. Get David Lynch to direct them. They'd be awesome. So while it doesn't have the depth of such earlier Pixar movies as Finding Nemo or Ratatouille, it's very engaging on that surface level. The Final Race, for example, is very exciting with that added danger of a potential character reveal in the rain. So if you think I'm wrong in this review, I know that's unlikely to happen by anybody out there. Um, <laughs> then just watch this back-to-back -back with Finding Nemo to see that differences in script. That said, I'll finish with, later on in this show, we review another animated feature, and compared to that, Luca is one of the greatest animation films <laughs> of all time. Uh, the great start to this month's reviews, Luca, can be found on Disney+. Plus. Let's return to cinemas for our next feature movie, Marvel's Black Widow. You don't know everything about me. I've lived a lot of lives. Before I was an Avenger. Before I got this family. I made mistakes. Choosing between what the world wants you to be. And who you are. We have to go back to where it all started. Where did you think I was all this time? We have unfinished business. I will start with a spoiler alert. If, like Jeff, you are not up to date on all things Marvel, it is best to watch Black Widow before listening to our review. Still here? Okay, I'll continue. Black Widow, or Natasha Romanoff, as played by Scarlett Johansson, was one of the superheroes that didn't make it through Avengers Endgame, which means Black Widow, the movie, deals with one of her earlier adventures being set after the events of Captain America Civil War. Going back to that time, Natasha is on the run from the authorities. When hiding out in Norway planning her next move, a mysterious package arrives, Having the package puts Natasha's life in danger from the deadly Taskmaster. No, not connected to the TV game show. Having survived one confrontation with Taskmaster, Natasha travels to Budapest to meet the sender of the package. It is another Black Widow, her surrogate sister, Yelena Belova, played by Florence Pugh. Will the two of them be able to defeat Taskmaster in the controlled army of Black Widow warriors? Graham. Was it good to be able to see a new Marvel film in the cinemas? Oh, yes, it was. <laughs> I loved it. I'd waited so long for this movie to come to the big screen that oh, I'd almost given up hope. Then hope was replaced by trepidation and finally fear that after all this time it wouldn't be any good. However, to cut right to the chase, this was great. Marvel certainly delivered the goods. 
It had a passable story uh, with the two central characters who had a wonderful chemistry. Uh, Florence Pugh and Johansson just seemed to work effortlessly together. Mm. And they had some quite detailed scenes where they were sort of sitting around tables talking to one another as sort of pseudo-sisters. Uh, and the whole family worked as well. The addition of David Harbour and Rachel Weisz, as solid, dependable actors, allowed the whole concept to appear quite believable. And I didn't expect it to be this funny, but it's a absolute hoot. And Florence Pugh has great comic timing and delivered her one-liners with the confidence and accuracy of, uh, of Connery's Bond. I mean, Harbour also was just off the chart with the humor stuff, taking Johansson aside to ask if Captain America ever mentioned him. <laughs> really, I laughed out loud at that. The action scenes, however, were a wee bit uneven. Some of them were really good, and others, well, no, that really didn't work. And the fight sequence uh, in Ray Winston's office, well, I thought that was particularly poor, but I just thought the whole thing was just great. Um, Marvel back on the game. There were some wonderful little cameos in it. And there was a, uh, a guy who was flirting with uh, Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> who can blame him? Um, a guy called, uh, played by, uh, OT Fagbenley, I think his name Fagbenley, is. Fagbenley, yeah. Yeah. And she was able to, to, to play off him. And that was just great fun. But overall, a really solid return to form for, for Marvel. Can't wait for the next uh, Marvel films coming up. So, you know, Marvel reached a crescendo with their Infinity Wars. And yet the for story... You, for you, Jeff, in Jeff world. Yeah. In Jeff oh, world, right, yeah. sorry. Planet, Planet Marvel Jeff. reached a um, crescendo with uh, Endgame. <laughs> and this now moves into the next phase. And yet it goes backwards rather than forwards. Do you think that's a marketing mistake? No, I think it just, it it was a, you know, we all know what happened to her. um, And it was just to see some of her, her backstory. And also it brought, to to be realistic, it brought Florence Pugh into the world and she's probably going to be the new Black Widow. And I cannot wait. I was going to jump in and say, because Jeff obviously hates Marvel, but it's, so far from being the wrong move from Marvel because one Black Widow and Hawkeye talked about Budapest constantly we finally get to find out what happened in Budapest. It brings in a new character for the future Darren? As a Marvel fan it felt good finally to be back in the cinema watching a Marvel movie and the the thing is this was a complete accident but in a way this was for me the perfect film to actually come out of Covid to because it actually occurs before Infinity War and Endgame, and it's not something that is, you know, continuing the, the saga or has to build on anything from the previous films. It's just a standalone story that you could basically just sit in and enjoy another fun uh, Marvel adventure with. I didn't realise how much I'd actually missed Marvel. I think the thing about this is it, all the humour, which I know some people doesn't work with, some people really sort of don't like the humour in there, all the sort of the, the wisecracking and stuff like that. I personally really love because it actually um, it actually builds on what was actually came across in the original Marvel comics, and I, I thought it was great because it was you know it was an action movie, but even though it was a solo movie, it had a great team dynamic, 
and this one had a real sense of, of family in there. I thought Florence Pugh was absolutely incredible. I thought she actually threatened to steal this, this, the film at many times. When we do finally get to another Avengers lineup, I'm, I'm sure that she is going to be there sort of, um, uh, front and centre. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. The action scenes, particularly some of the fight ones, were a, a little ropey. I did have some problems with it. And I've got to say, one of them is very nerdy, and I, I don't like what they did with Taskmaster. Taskmaster is one of my favourite characters. Um, he's got a very Deadpool-like character about him, uh, but a villain, and he got so much potential. And I'm sorry, but... Darren, you keep saying him. I, I assume so, it's a male in the comics. In the, then. in the comics, it's a male, yeah. And uh, obviously they changed the, the, the gender from it. I'm totally changed the actual sort of the whole dynamic of the character. Um, but I was at, so I was actually gutted that they uh, basically um, mandarined this character. Um, maybe we couldn't get another Taskmaster at some point. Who knows? But I, I felt for, as, as a as a comic nerd that I was disappointed with that. Another thing that was sort of got to me was in this one that they really tried to turn Black Widow into Wonder Woman particularly at the end. Yes. You know, the, the cool thing about yeah. Black Widow is she was a down-to-earth character with human skills who held her own with, with battling these sort of, uh, you know, these over-the-top characters. You know, that's what made her great. And the fact that she would get hurt and hit and everything. And in this one, she was like flying through the air and sort of like doing all these crazy gymnasts and like avoiding wreckage and stuff at the end. I, I preferred the down-to-earth character of Black Widow, not the sort of bringing down a, a flying fortress in the sky and sort of basically surviving these unbelievable explosions and stuff. That, that sort of... I, I didn't like that. I, I like the down-to-earth Black Widow. But the main thing that really got it is this was our goodbye to this character. I know she already had her big death scene, but this was the last time we were going to see a Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow. And we got a really big send-off for Tony Stark. We got a really moving send-off for Steve Rogers. And I was really looking for a bit of gravitas from her final scene of what of watching her walk off into the, the, the distance. I, and just saying sort of, you know, goodbye. And I didn't feel that. And I was really sort of disappointed because I, I wanted to have tears in my eyes and, and saying, you know, goodbye to her. I would even have been quite happy if she'd have done like what Christopher Reeve used to do at the end of the Superman movies, where he'd um, look into the camera and smile. If she had just done a little bit of a, a, a nod, as just as the film was closing, just kind of a little bit of a, um, you know, a, a, not a fourth wall break, but just a look into the camera with a smile. I, that, that would have basically been, you know, really cool for me. But generally speaking, as an MCU movie, it's far from my favourites. But it was so much fun to be back. There were so many great characters in this, and I just had a, a, a lot of fun with it. It scares me that I might actually have liked this film more than you. <laughs> that really worries me. In many ways, Black Widow reflects the best and worst of Marvel films for me. It, I think, and I'm not saying uh, things here that the others have already said, it lacks ambition in story and concept while in characters and performances, it absolutely shines. And I think the best comparison is to take Black Widow and compare it to the film that started Marvel's successful run, being Iron Man. John Favreau came on board after making some, you know, arty movies and started from the point of hiring actors not normally found in this type of film. They'd be more suited to quirky and offbeat uh, uh, entertainments, Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow and Jeff Bridges. It made you care about these characters and then backed it up with strong action scenes. In Black Widow, 
Director Kate Shortland follows the first half of that blueprint perfectly and gets the characters right. Unfortunately, that success does not translate to the action set pieces. Some are very poorly directed and edited. It's almost like trying for that Bourne style of action, but it ends up confusing. Kate Shortland is not an action director if you look at her filmography. Perhaps Marvel could have brought somebody else in to have directed those sequences? And then add that to a finale, which is another city or object in the sky, blown out and crashing to Earth, so done to death by Marvel that's almost a cliché now. The main positive from this film is Florence Pugh. Now, I hear she's upcoming in one of those Marvel TV series things. I'll be watching that. I did try watching one recently, WandaVision, turned it off halfway through the first episode and went to watch I Love Lucy instead. <laughs> but I will watch that. If Florence Pugh's in it, she's simply yeah. brilliant and the centerpiece of this film, despite it being called Black Widow. And I'm not denigrating the other actors, Johansson, Weiss and Harbour, all form a great balance. Only Winston struggled to make an impression on a character that doesn't have the necessary depth. And to be honest, it's something he's played many times before. And also, nobody's brought this up yet, and I'm really concerned that you haven't. If you look at the timeline when Ray Winstone's explaining it on the blackboard, the brainwashed Black Widows, it's quite clear they were in Britain and they got Brexit through. Oh, geez. Go back and have a look at that. Mm, and right. Finally, on a related subject, there's a credit in the end credits, because that sits through there for that tie-in with Veep at the end. A credit for Marvel Studios Parliament. No thanks, guys. I've had enough comic book governments. Don't want any more. Anyway, I did like the film. Really like the film. Like the theme of redemption. Like the acting. And Florence Pugh, absolutely brilliant as always. Scarlett Johansson is excellent again, as always. She's been in the role for well over a decade of Marvel films, and she nails her own film. Florence Pugh steals scenes because she's a wonderful actress, yes. I agree with Jeff again, that's crazy. Uh, I am a fan. Her Russian accent, fight scenes, her one-liners, the mickey-taking. She came up with the stupidity of Natasha's superhero posing, so the writer put it in the script. There's more fun here than in most other of the films of the type, and the two work so well together. Florence is a force of nature. What a cool way to die. You're such a poser. And don't get me started on fallopian tubes. Uh, just some, some brilliant lines. Yeah. And I cannot wait to see her in the Disney Plus series Hawkeye coming soon, I, hopefully in 2021. Sure, it's a bit overlong. There's loads of collateral damage, but without consequences. Olga Kurilenko gets a Deadpool-like cameo with Brain washed with no speaking uh, ray winston does some small threatening type stuff yes another city in the sky villain uh, the fight scenes replace any story depth but that's standard it feels like a baton passing ceremony natasha to yelenka and there's loads of marvel references easter eggs to spot but it is so much fun i need to see it again so I thought I would uh, support the release model that Disney were going for here, and I saw it at the cinema and on Disney Plus because my wife my, my wife didn't want to go on opening day, and then we got it on Disney Plus so the kids could watch it. <laughs> so I supported the the release model there. I thought, as far as Marvel films go, this was a low key meditation on family, or at least you know as far as you can do that with with a Marvel film. So. I really liked the fleshing out of Black Widow's character as somebody who's always been in search of family, whether that's with the Avengers or the adoptive one. 
that she was thrust into as a child. The best bits of the film as a result were when she was with her family. So as great as Scarlett Johansson was, and she wasn't necessarily sidelined in her own film, and you've all kind of said this, the best moments for me were Florence Pugh and David Harbour. Mm. They were brilliant. They were hilarious. Um, I really loved their characters. I'm really looking forward to them appearing again in the Marvel Ventures um, going forward. To answer your question, Graham, about what will happen with Yelena, I suspect that as... Uh, Jeff keeps saying Veep is putting together like a Thunderbolts type crew because US Marshall and um, Yelena were part of the Thunderbolts at various times. And then I think later on she'll have like a redemption and become Black Widow perhaps. You never know. I can't remember who said it. I think it might have been Graham about the action. I thought the action was really polished. I really liked the fight in the flat in Budapest. And I really liked the aerial stunts that happened right at the very end of the film. And as for the cliched, another large thing crashing into the earth, I thought about that. Technically, this film's set in the past. So that's about when Marvel were dropping lots of heavy objects from the sky into the ground. So surely that's right in keeping with the uh, the era, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, it doesn't have the bombast of the most recent Avengers films. I think it's probably like middle tier Marvel, but I really did enjoy myself. I've watched it twice, so I must have enjoyed it to some extent. And Mm. Florence Pugh and David Harbour can um, happily come back and feature in cameos for other TV shows and films as much as they like, as long as they're as funny as they were in this one. Okay. So why is it a crossover with Veep? It wasn't as funny as Veep. (sighs) Jesus. Uh, You're just going to try and get that one until we laugh, are you? No. Okay, then. So, Black Widow. Just as Marvel make a halfway entertaining feature, they kill off the lead character, Figures. Black Widow's in cinemas, or if you would rather, for an additional payment, you can watch the movie on Disney+, Plus, as Phyllis described. Moving on, and it's time to sing along to our next film, In the Heights. In un barrio called Washington Heights. The streets were made of music. I am Usnavian. You probably never heard my name. Reports of my fame are greatly exaggerated. Morning, Usnavi. Pan caliente, cafe con leche. On these blocks, you can't walk two steps without bumping into someone's big plan. I'm making moves, I'm making deals, but guess what? What? You still ain't got no skills. <laughs> A musical created by Lin-Manuel Miranda, the writer of Hamilton. In the Heights is set in Washington Heights, area of New York, during one hot summer. We are introduced to a wide array of colourful characters, such as store owner U.S. Navi, or U.S. Navi, uh, Anthony Ramos, who dreams of living in the Dominican Republic, and Vanessa, played by Melissa Berrara, who plans to move to Uptown New York and is the unrequited love of Osnavi's life. Then there is the unofficial matriarch of both Osnavi and Vanessa and many others in the community. Abuela, played by Olga Moredes. <laughs> Abuela, quiet and guiding ways, does so much to hold the community together. However, this summer... 
Much is to change for all three of them and many other people in Washington Heights. Neil, is this another Hamilton or does it have more in common with West Side Story? Well, I haven't seen Hamilton, I'm afraid. It uh, portrays King George as a sore loser. Read the history, you bastards. No, it, and it's a rap music thing. It does have a West Side Story feel. It's a kind of Jets versus, well, that's the thing. The bad guys are Stanford University's racism. Maybe it was it biz, big business stealing customers or is it racial discrimination? But it doesn't really stick with any of them. It's just a reason, reason for the interminably happy interchangeable characters to stay in the Heights for yet another song and dance number. There's the briefest, briefest mentions of DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood and, and Rivals, set up by Obama and sadly recently challenged through the courts. Born in the USA of illegal immigrant parents, I believe, and I'm hoping I'm getting this right, every two years they have to appeal to stay for another two, assuming they have jobs, etc. Biden is trying to keep it going. 616,000 people are enrolled in the program. So why isn't the uncertainty about that? enemy um the scenes on a supposed caribbean beach maybe roll my eyes largely unnecessary sure the dance numbers but busby berkeley swimming pool scene included a fun and it'd be hard not to smile at the aforementioned relentless happiness it, the last <laughs> act did you like that bit i love that line grumpy. i love that line the last oh. act changes tone from endless fame style song and dance numbers and it goes downhill a bit but no they still manage a dance number or two and why not <laughs> maybe this is the sort of unrealistic ridiculously upbeat film we need right now you know what i'm gonna watch it again so neil <laughs> after listening to that review i must ask what do you hold against the latinx community oh, oh shut <laughs> up it's got all to do with that and you know that jeez jeff phil well firstly anyone who has not seen hamilton is missing out <laughs> yeah um, I saw it on stage a few years ago and the soundtrack has played regularly in my car since then. My kids love it without um, even having seen it. So they, they were singing along to all the songs before it arrived on Disney Plus and we've watched it a few times since then. It's amazing. And yeah, I mean, sometimes there is nothing better than a big, grandiose musical to uplift our spirits. And In the Heights does not disappoint in that regard. Whether they're dancing on the side of buildings, an entire community performing synchronized swimming routines, or dancing in the streets, there's always another number just around the corner that will mesmerize you with its brilliance. Director John M. Chu, who did Crazy Rich Asians, and the cinematographer Alice Brooks never let the material stage roots hem them in, either with the song and dance numbers bursting at the seams with, with ideas. I mean, just as an example, there's there's a bit where the characters are walking down the streets and start sort of drawing symbols with their hands and stuff like that. And that's not even a dance number that's as inventive as that. Contrary to what Neil just said, <laughs> sorry, the film covers a diverse range of subjects, and I thought quite well. So there's lots of characters who all have different worries and fears and things that are impacting them in that community. I do kind of agree that perhaps they'd never really focus necessarily on any one of those, but it does talk about, you know, how local businesses form communities around them um, and what community means to different generations of immigrants. Yeah. And every character's got a different aspirational dream molded by all of what you see. And I kind of thought that perhaps that was more why we had so many different stories because it was trying to 
tell us about the melting pot of different people who are coming together in that environment. Performance-wise, I thought there were three really great standouts in a big, large ensemble. Anthony Ramos, who plays Uznavi. Yep. Um, I thought he carried the film. I thought he was really good in the lead role. But I thought that Leslie Grace and Melissa Barrera gave the film its heart in terms of you know what their characters were rooting for. If I had a gripe, it would be the film's pacing. I don't know how much of a spoiler this is, but there's some title cards that kind of happen throughout the film, sort of that count down to an event. I don't know why, and perhaps it's just me. I kind of felt that that was like, you know, this is counting down to the apex, the denouement of the story, but it kind of gets there, and then it's like, okay, well, that's just a turning point, and we've still got quite a lot to go. So I felt that was a bit anticlimactic, and then it made me feel like it was a bit long, because I was expecting when we got there for that to kind of be, you know, where the story would come to a crescendo, um, rather than, well that changed a couple of things and we still got quite a long way to go. Overall though, I still thought it was a really joyous film. And when I watched it, we didn't have the heat wave that we had now. And I, it made me really excited and ready for summer as opposed to now where I'm like, Oh my God, it's too hot and I'm melting. <laughs> so, so just to clarify, when you say about the title cards that go through the film, yeah. do you think they should have been adjusted or the film shortened? I don't feel like you needed this countdown to this event because the event in itself was dramatic, was a big turning point in the story. I don't think that they needed the title cards, or at least they didn't for me because the title cards suggested to me that that was going to be the crescendo and it wasn't. So it was like, why did they have them if then there's no more title cards after that event happens, but we've still got quite a lot of story? That I thought that was weird. Okay. Graham? I'm not a fan of musicals, but even I enjoyed this. It was an incredible cast. Great songs and the dance numbers are the standout feature of this movie. I mean, Phil's probably said it all. Leading man Anthony Ramos as Osnavi is a wonderful focal point for the music and the dance. And his leading ladies, uh, Melissa Barbara and Leslie Grace, however, are absolute knockouts. What incredible voices. And in the case of Leslie Grace, what an answer. Uh, I mean, the standout for me was the song 96,000 and the Busby Berkeley inspired aquatic dance number. However, uh, Melissa Barbera's voice is wonderful and she has the range to go from tragic to ecstatic with very little visible effort. It's a great load of fun and it's one of the best musicals I've seen in years. It was excellent. I was having quite a packed cinema and you know people were really into it and enjoying it it was just it's a great great evening out or you can probably catch it on tv shortly but i think it's a great film okay had you seen hamilton yeah yeah i've seen hamilton i enjoyed that i thought it was great excellent okay darren Oh, and I don't have a problem with the Latinx community. No, I, I, oh, I, I gathered that. Oh, right. I just inferred that in with a review. And I'm sure as we go on to Darren, Darren will also not have a problem with the Latinx community. <laughs> uh, absolutely not. And after one thing, Thank you, after, after watching this film, I want to go live there in their community because yeah. it looks like a really <laughs> gorgeous place. I don't know why anybody would actually want to escape it, personally. Um, the, the thing... When, when I came to it, this was a really difficult film for me to get any thought about because all I could keep thinking was that In the Heights was just really, really nice. It was just a really joyful film. And every, every time somebody asked me what it, was not, what, what it was like as a film, I just replied, oh, it was really nice. 
and that and that's what it is. It's it, the whole film is just this uh, collection of heartwarming stories about chasing dreams, about finding love, about finding the love that you didn't expect, making your way in life, and and, and finding your bravery and, and family and community. And everything's just told in like a really sort of nice, positive way. The film looks absolutely great. It looks like a vibrant community. The, the dance numbers were absolutely wonderful. And above all, it, it's a fairy tale. And you can and say, well, maybe it's romanticising. But at the same time, the, the other things that we romanticise in life, I think it was nice to basically have a really, really positive film with these characters. It tackles issues like problems immigrants face and gentrification of cities. The way they're sort of featured is that they, the reaction to them is very positive. The young girl who basically decides that she's going to um, stick to being at college because she wants to help people like a friend who are struggling to get a green card and everything and that sort of thing. It's everything about us was really positive and nice and, and the, also the guy who all his life he's wanted to escape and he's found that he's actually happiest um, he's made a home for himself in that, in that community but he is actually amongst his people and everything about it was just, you know, just really lovely and nice and a warm feeling. My main issue with, and I'm not saying issue, but maybe about disappointment is that I'm a really big fan of musicals. When I think of a great musicals like La La Land or Hamilton, when I hear those songs for the first time, they immediately connect. The tunes hit me and stay with me. And I'm sort of singing along almost, even though it's, you know, sometimes because we play the same song several times and you sort of get used to it. And in this one, I, I liked the music, but not as songs in their own right. They all seemed to be like sort of the music was sort of telling the stories of these characters and they were sort of through, through their sort of singing, their, their feelings and stuff. I didn't come away with this thinking that I really wanted to uh, buy the soundtrack. I personally, you know, really, really in, in, enjoyed In the Heights. Um, yeah, and I will watch it again. Maybe the songs will sort of uh, react with me a bit more. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. You make a good point there, Darren, about the songs. There are moments in this film where it seems like they've written dialogue to say, and oh, we'll just set a bit of music under them. You know, like I've come to the shop to buy a coffee. Uh, I think that's actually almost a line that is sung in the film. I think that detracts from when the songs are really strong. Mm. I mean, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's funny that some of the best songs and tunes and, and, and particular lines all featured in the trailer. Like uh, the, the song where he turns up for work and he has to chase off the guy who's, um, you know, graffitiing. And then when he's got that, like, that really sort of triumphant line about, this is our town, we won't stop, we won't go away, this is, you know, this is our community, this is our chance. And that line's in the trailer. And there wasn't anything else, any bit of music that's, for me, um, matched that at all during the film there weren't sort of songs that i would basically i didn't come away from this like sort of like in hamilton when i was sort of singing you know just one hearing of them the tunes and the lyrics were in my head for, forever apart from the uh the, the um we are powerless song which again didn't really hit me as a great song it was just like a sort of them speaking their feelings there was nothing in there that basically sort of as a musical really sort of got me wanting to like like i say buy the soundtrack it's interesting you talk about that graffiti artist because that's the only crime that we see in the film. West Side Story, it ain't. He could have done with a couple of knives. Anyway, Washington Heights. <laughs> it's a place where everybody's trying to escape from. Yet apart from the blackout of the finale of the film, the place, and everybody said this, is almost idyllic, right? Idealism can go so far as this movie 
is hellishly overlong. It's just got such a light plot and it's just stretched out. I mean, performance wise, the two leads are very engaging. And again, you've all said that. Although the breakup scene they have in the club is ridiculous. And quite honestly, you should have just slapped her. But, oh, 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 Jesus oh, H. Christ. So much else oh, in In the Heights God. is also contrived in cliche. You know, the inclusion of the ice cream vendor story. Is that because it's played by the writer of this piece? Yes. I mean, really, that should have ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, I think that's the character from the stage play. I I do think that that was an existing character. Yeah, but the stage play was twice as long as this. Yeah, the argument that you, you know, to cut him out, fine, yeah. But I think he he was a character from the the show. Right, but had he been cut, what would you have missed? You know, you couldn't have picked up a 99. That's about it, really, isn't it? The biggest disappointment, I think, in this film, and it shows, and where it fails on the sense of community, is that sequence where you've had three days of blackout. And if you've ever been in New York in the summer, trust me, it is not a pleasant place to be if you haven't got central heating. And then some central heating. (laughs) Air conditioning, sorry. If you haven't got air conditioning. And... Somebody coming along and said, we're going to have a party. Let's, you know, fiesta forever. No, you'd lynch them. Okay. <laughs> They'd be hanging from a lamppost. Now, as for the songs, Graham's already said 96,000, which I think is a brilliant song and a brilliant piece of choreography. The Sun Goes Down for Me is the one which I like the most. And it also referenced that wonderful film with Fred Astaire, Royal Wedding. Those are really good. The dancing choreography is all good i love that first one where you don't see the dancing you see the reflection in the glass yeah clever, clever. idea yeah. yeah but again there's just too much of it in the film i think if they cut this down even further i mean oh, bloody hell i mean yeah the stage play is what twice as long what a night of rap boredom that must have been no, oh. the stage play is absolutely fantastic it's the, it's the film that doesn't quite recreated i think yeah but it is possible and you know compared to something else we're shortly to review this is an absolute classic despite all those things (laughs) (laughs) oh i wonder what film that is i wonder what we're going to do next so that's our thoughts on the american musical of the summer in the heights let's now look at another aspect of america with america the emotion picture holy shit Gav. Oh, Gav. I can't ask you to go in there with me. Yeah, yeah good, because no. Great, good luck. Whoa, 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 whoa. So you want me, a black dude, to play lookout for you while you break the law? I'm talking real heavy hitters. From Netflix comes this animation feature which purports to take a satirical look back at the American War of Independence. Laid back George Washington, voiced by Channing Tatum, and his more politically aware friend, Abraham Lincoln, voiced by Will Forty, are confronted by evil werewolf Benedict Arnold, voiced by Andy Sambuck. Abe is killed and George Washington swears to free his fledgling country of America from the British. 
the scene is set for an epic battle, which includes the involvement of the Titanic Robocop horse and Star Wars-style London buses. Jeff, this is politics and an irreverent style. Sounds like an animated feature made for you. Well, you'd have thought so, Neil, wouldn't you? Now, I've got a philosophy, and I know that will shock you to start off with. Um, I have a belief no one sets out to make a bad film. Everybody involved in the film, because of the time and the demands, wants to make the best they can. Well, America the Motion Picture has smashed that idea. Believing that the filmmakers behind this puerile rubbish set out to make an entertainment is like believing Bodger Johnson is not a racist. <laughs> it's like the director and the writer are 12-year-olds who turned in a script written in crayon with all the sex and pop culture reference that their tiny minds could think of, and I stress that word, tiny. <laughs> the idea they supposedly were trying to lampoon was an alternative founding of America as imagined by a deranged child. None of it makes sense. It has no point. And most importantly of all, it's not funny. Netflix, having brought the script, knew this was going to be a disaster, so they cut back on the money and allowed the filmmakers to only make the movie in the cheap style of a 70s TV cartoon which, by the way, were far intellectually superior. There's nothing <laughs> really? good that can be said of this junk. And if I didn't have to review it, I would have turned it off after suffering 10 minutes of it. As it is, I've lost 98 minutes of my life. Now, I'm old. This could be the last movie I see, and what a shocking way to end a life of watching great movies. <laughs> my final point, director Matt Thompson and Dave Callahan clearly are mocking the education system of America and want to dumb it down further. This leads to the inescapable conclusion that anyone who found anything remotely entertaining in America, the motion picture, is a Trump supporter. <laughs> and now I'm going to watch the images of this crap out of my eyes. Final note, scriptwriter Dave Callahan has written Marvel's upcoming Feng Shui movie. You have been warned. <laughs> Shang-Chi. Yeah. Darren. This was absolute crap. I feel an echo coming on. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, I, I'm a really big fan of uh, animation, uh, particularly adult humour. I love stuff like South Park, Family Guy, Archer, stuff like the Lego movie, stuff with a bit of wit to it and a bit of super subversiveness and a bit of satire. This was a 10-minute, at the most, comedy sketch, basically just dragged out. M many years ago, there was an animated um, sketch show called Monkey Dust on the uh, BBC. And they had a sketch on there, which was pretty much like this. Because this film, basically, to me, was about the fact that um, most Americans don't know the history and that when Hollywood um, tries to make a movie on the history, they basically just get it all wrong and just throw in a load of um, guff on there. And that's what we saw. And like I said, the Monkey Dust um, sketch was about the um, Crusades, and it was about if Hollywood made a movie on the Crusades, now they basically made it all about America and everything. But like I said, that was a 10-minute sketch, and this is what you know this was. It was absolutely awful. There was absolutely no satire, no wit to it. And I mean, if, if you're going to have a, a comedy film, it, it needs to be funny. You know, I know it sounds, it sounds like the obvious, but this wasn't. There, there was a couple of gags that I thought were, were, were okay. I mean, at the start at Lincoln's funeral, when they had um, Alexander Hamilton there, but it was actually Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. 
<laughs> I thought that was a bit funny. Yeah. And also that the Leon V, some of the, the stuff about American action movies, how they, they did a little skit on them, the Fast and Furious films at the start. But again, it was just like a really tiny little um, bits in just an, an overall really tedious movie. The only sort of bit of satire or any cleverness I got was in the final uh, seconds of the film when basically um, everyone who's got together suddenly shows all their different allegiances and how, how uh, America was going to get things wrong for a couple of centuries afterwards. So if you'd have had something like that running through the film, maybe it would have been passable. But this was just um, puerile nonsense. And this was just absolute garbage. Darren, you are past the test. You are not a Trump supporter. Graham? <laughs> Uh, nonsense. Not for me. Not my humour. Waste of time. I still have 30 films recommended by Darren and Phil to get through. Any of those would have been better use of my time than this low-quality drivel. Moving on. Phil, uh, Just before Phil, uh, just before <laughs> Phil, you also have passed the test. You are not a Trump supporter. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Phil. I'm actually, like, crapping up with laughter listening to you guys talk about this i thought this was really funny <laughs> and it makes me laugh so much about how especially jeff how much he hated it because this was one of my picks because i saw the trailer for this and i love archer and it's from the producer of archer also lord and miller who obviously made the lego movie and some of the other great um, animated films. Quite frankly, Irreverent does not cut it. <laughs> the film is absolutely bonkers in the best way. George Washington has pop-out chainsaws attached to his arm. He also, at one point, runs out of petrol for them. Benedict Arnold is a werewolf. King, King James is a cross between Darth Vader and Baron Harkonnen. At times, I thought it was quite satirical, such as when the team enter a bar called Vietnam, and at others... And generally, mainly at other times, it's just deeply silly. Um, I thought that the Fast and Furious style race um, sequence with horses was was brilliant. Was one of the best bits in it. There's riffs on Reservoir Dogs, the A Team, RoboCop, lots and lots of others. I thought the jokes about um, them making anachronistic comments was hilarious. Every now and then, they'd be like, "What's a car?" And I thought that there was good commentary on sexism, racism, and gun culture. Um, Thoughts and prayers was mentioned. Yeah, that once. was. I thought, yeah. I thought that yeah, was yeah. good. Darren's just said the, the exact opposite, but I thought I think if you do like the anarchic nature of Rick and Morty, I love the satire of South Park, yep. or the cutting humor of Archer. I thought you know, it's, this is the sort of film you'd like. And also the voice cast, I thought were great. I mean, Andy Samberg and um, Channing Tatum got great comic timing. And contrary to what Jeff said, I thought the animation was really nice, really nice looking. And there's a mid credit scene. I think most of the films we're talking about today uh, have got mid credit scenes. So, yeah, I, I liked it. And I think I'm the only person who's going to be in that boat on this one. Um, okay. Uh, and I, I, I take differences of opinion, and, and that's fine. And I appreciate you seeing it a different way to me. What I don't understand in all your comments is how animation is cheaply done with the black matte lines all around each character. How you can think that's gorgeous? What, what am what? I missing? It looks, I thought it looked great. It's like a really, really bold and bright cartoon for a really bold and bright, stupid idea. <laughs> yeah, that test I was saying about. Over to you, Neil. <laughs> well, I'm with Phil. 
I thought the last, oh, uh, the first act certainly is laugh out loud funny. There's a scene in there where they, where Lincoln meets Benedict Arnold. I'm not going to repeat it, but it's hilarious. The set, the whole setup is hilarious. Lincoln and Washington both end arguments against the British with uh, something about taxation. Washington inspired speeches always end with John 316. Dying Lincoln, uh, name it America. Washington says, is that your top choice? Martha Washington playing the Bengals eternal flame. Lincoln's funeral. Some great jokes about modern America. Mickey taking a, a film such as The Transporter, E.T., Animal House, Fast and the Furious, One Quarter Mule at a Time, Baby Driver, Robocop, King James. Why not the actual King? Ah, oh, no idea. Who cares? T- is 10 rules, no rom-coms, no scrubs, no research, not winning Vietnam. And then the first act ends. And then the film yeah, kind of drifts a bit. There's the lame Gettysburg address villa. Um, this could have been six episodes of comedy on Netflix, maybe even Adult Swim. But it's a film and the first act makes up for the clunkiness. And that said, Freebird would have made an most Excellent national anthem. The last scene, though, is excellent. When he's uh, Washington standing there and the, and the people in front of them are saying, well, we've got our new place, it's called America, and they're going, what about your slaves, Washington? Will women be granted equality in your America? What about getting our land back? Can we keep our guns to protect ourselves from Mexicans? There will be fair and unbiased judicial process. At least we'll get comprehensive health care. Well, yeah, I, I just, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I, yeah, it did. Okay. The second and third acts are a little bit sort of stretched out. I agree with that. But, uh, yeah, no, I thought it's hilarious. So you want guns to protect yourselves from Mexicans? I go back to my Latinx comment. <sighs> well, that was the point. It's oh, the right. stupid. Okay. Well, that film certainly split opinion. <laughs> If you're brain dead or a Trump fan and want to watch America, the motion picture, (laughs) it can be found on Netflix. After watching it, I'm sure very many Americans wish they'd stayed as a colony. Things must improve with our last film, F9, the Fast Saga, or Fast and the (laughs) Furious 9. All right, Dom, what's next? No matter how fast you are. To be compared to you, no one outruns their past. I am more easy, you trying your best to become me. And mine just caught up to me. So we're up against a master thief, assassin, high performance driver. Who is he? Jacob is Dom's brother. There's nothing more powerful than the lover family. But you turn that into anger, there's nothing more dangerous. Please tell me that's not a Pontiac Fiero strapped to a rocket engine? Impressive. I know. No. No, that's that's not impressive. My ass is in fuego! Whilst there's no Dwayne Johnson or Jason Statham in this latest entry of the Fast and Furious series, there is the introduction of Dominic Toretto's brother Jacob, as played by John Senna. (laughs) (laughs) He is a rogue super spy who is after a new secret weapon. Dom and his team have to saddle up to stop both Jacob 
and a previous nemesis, Cypher, played by Charlize Theron. Luckily, they have help from an unexpected quarter. Han Sung Khan, previously thought dead, is back once again to side with the good guys. Over-the-top stunts and characters, as well as that overuse of the word family. It is everything fans of the series want. But Darren, does this one travel in high or low gear? These films never travel in anything lower than top speed. You know, even even <laughs> when they're in park, they're in um, they're, they're revving the cars up. I actually admire these films because if you ever want one of the weirdest, most ridiculous, batshit crazy movie days, start with the first film and then just see how these films developed. So you you started from a fairly low key crime story to orange Lamborghinis at the North Pole battling submarines while Dwayne Johnson kicks um, nuclear missiles out of the way with his with his boot. They, they just absolutely don't give a damn about making any sort of logical sense, any sort of like scientific sense. They break the laws of gravity and everything. And I just was sat there just almost in hysterics at times with, with these films. That, that early scene when they're trying to get over a rope bridge and the road bridge is breaking and they're still managing to get across and just just absolutely ridiculous and all the stuff with the magnets they, these films are absolutely crazy but they, they know what they want to be and and that is just sort of really stupid dumb fun and I actually sort of kind of admire them <laughs> for that I have to say car chasers car chasers I kind of sort of start to um, drift off from after about a several uh, minutes be a Tokyo drift yeah, Tokyo Drift, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Just, You're welcome. Yeah, they're, they're, they're just completely, you know, bonkers. And that's it, say that storylines make no sense. How the fact that it's, um, you know, you've got these um, world in peril scenarios and that the American government, time and time again, turn up to these five um, sort of, you know, car racing drivers. You know, it's, it's just completely ridiculous. And I have to admit that the story after a while just completely goes out of my head. I mean, when I got to the finale, I actually forgot what the peril was and what everyone was trying to do <laughs> and why. I forgot. I, I had no idea if these bad guys actually won, what the consequences were going to be, whether we're going to hold the world to ransom, whether we're going to destroy the world. I had absolutely no idea whatsoever. I mean, these, I mean, just how ridiculous this film is. They've got a device which could basically bring about the end of the world. So we decide to split it into two. Why not just take it apart <laughs> and basically pour concrete on it, stuff like that? It's a ridiculous movie, but I just have so much fun with it. That said, there are a lot and lot of valid uh, criticism about these films, which I completely get. I mean, one of them is is the stakes, and it has to be said that I, what I find really bizarre is these seemingly superhuman bodies that these characters have um, there's a term in pro wrestling called selling which is basically about if someone takes a move selling that move to make it look like you're hurt and they never do that they'll basically fall 20 foot off height and land onto a car bonnet and then just pop up again as if uh, nothing has happened again the car and basically go driving <laughs> away again this goes to black widow a little bit as well i was watching the first avengers movie the other week and one thing that got me about that is you've got these superhuman characters but all of them, when they take a hit, they look like they're hurt. 
they fall down and they sort of like, you know, sort of grimace and, and sort of slowly get back up again. They get cuts on the faces, the clothes get torn. By the end of those films, those characters look like they've been in a fight. In Fast and Furious, you don't get that. They basically, the hair, you know, the ones that do have hair, it's totally uh, in place. <laughs> the, the, after a while, you, you don't care whether these characters are in peril because, you know, even the ones who are in space, which is another thing completely. You just don't feel that anything can hurt these characters. As much as I enjoy these movies, most of the characters in these films are pretty much unlikable. I, I like the um, trio of Roman, Tasia, Nathan. I think they're, they're really fun. They had a lot of you know the, the good lines. I really like their characters. Dominic Toretto is just sort of cold and full of himself. And now this whole thing about family, I just find really, really nauseating and the whole thing about them sitting down and saying grace <laughs> around the table especially when you have characters who in one film are trying to kill them and then this film are suddenly on their side of good guys i just find that really sort of just really nauseating and, and unconvincing and so again i i like these films just for the actual sure ridiculousness and, and the entertainment value but as, as Mark Komodo has said once with we, we, we Blockbusters, people are going to see Blockbusters anyway, you know, no matter what you give them. So rather than sort of doing the attitude of people are going to watch them anyway, so I'm not going to have anything, um, I'm not going to try to make them good. If people are going to see them anyway, why not try to be creative and try to make them good? And, and that's what I would like to see with this film. Get, to, get away from these Mission Impossible knockoffs plots and all these MacGuffins and all these sort of cyber devices which are going to take over the world and try to do it next time. Have all the stunts and all the craziness, but try to do something a little bit more interesting and a little bit more perilous. Wise words, but it's not going to happen, is it? There's only two more (laughs) of these films left and they're going to take it as far as they can. At this point in time, the Fast franchise is beyond any kind of coherent criticism. (laughs) And I think Darren kind of summed that up. It's evolution from undercover cops trying to catch street racing criminals into globe-trotting James Bond spies with superhero-like invulnerability is as extraordinary as the muscles on its stars. I, for one, am a convert. I have very, very little interest or knowledge of cars. I really could not care less. And the first four films, as far as I'm concerned, are charmless bores and... Frankly, I will only ever get around to watching them again if I decide to write something or we decide to talk about the crazy evolution that I just talked about and I have to watch them again because they are awful. But when they introduced Dwayne Johnson in the fifth film and they converted them from street racing sort of car films into action movies, I found myself won over because... Like Darren said, what they now do is they go, what are the most insane stunts and in physics that we can do? And how you know far can we push that envelope? This is the 10th film in the Fast franchise. And I'd say it's probably now in my top three after the fifth and seventh, which are my first and second favorites. But that's probably not saying much, like I said, because <laughs> the first four don't even get like close to being anywhere even you know worth rewatching again. 
I actually, in this one, I liked the flashback story about Dom's brother. And I thought that, like, the fuzzy, grainy images that you got in that versus the digital footage, like, for the rest of the film was quite clever and fun. And at the same time, I was just cracking up laughing at the fact that we're on the 10th film and apparently now Dom's had a brother. <laughs> I mean, it kind of sums it all up because they keep doing this. And you mentioned in the summary about a guy from the third film who's now back from the dead. And they just keep doing this. They keep doing these crazy retcons. Again, it's almost as crazy as the stunts that they perform. But what I find fantastic about it is that if you just let yourself go with it, if you root for the insanity, it just is funny and brings a big smile to your face. I burst out laughing three times whilst watching this film. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to, but like nobody else in the cinema seemed to mind. And I didn't do it like in a mocking derisory way, but just in a, I cannot believe that they're doing this. And I think to some extent, the filmmakers, with perhaps the exception of Vin Diesel, who definitely is not in on the joke, but I do, I do think that they're in on the joke to some extent. So there's a bit where Roman and Tej, who are the comic relief, let's face it, they have a whole conversation about the possibility that they might be invincible. <laughs> and even more unbelievably, I can't remember which one it is, but he explains that as long as they believe in the rules of physics and they follow those rules of physics, that they'd be fine. Because, of course, <laughs> Dom catching people with his car is completely following the laws of physics because, as Darren just said, if you, like, fly off of something at 60 miles an hour, fly 40 feet through the air, but a car bonnet stops your floor instead of the ground, you'll be fine. Don't panic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but, and, you know, in all of that bonkersness, I haven't talked about Charlize Theron coming back with an even worse haircut than she had last time. I haven't talked about Helen Mirren having a cameo as the most cockney person to ever grace a film. <laughs> and there's a flashback scene that allows you to get an old school street race, because obviously there are some people who like cars and watch these films because of that. And on top of that, you get a posh person's street race get together with women wearing posh dresses who are gyrating suggestively around the cars, which is just like the incredulity of that is just insane. And as in all Fast and Furious films, do you need to go a little bit faster because there is always another gear? Yeah. Change gear, people, because there are 25,000 gears in that car. And no matter what you do, if you want to catch up with someone, if you want to edge in front of them, change gear it's definitely it always one works doesn't it the um <laughs> the one thing neither you nor darren have picked up on you talked about the evolutionist thing you have a series where the main actor or you know certainly joint main actor dies halfway through the filming of one of the films and yet it still continues on yeah yeah i mean <laughs> but you know that's and that's one of the reasons why the seventh film and you say halfway through like he's he's on the seventh film you know he didn't appear in the third one i mean that that in itself is crazy right because the two main characters in the first film one of them's not in the second film at all and cameos in the third and the one who's in the first two isn't in the third at all it's like even the main actors lost faith at some point and then went ah but my career's not doing so well so i'll come back honestly the whole way that it's evolved is just nuts and i think universal will just be sad when it goes away because it makes so much money it's insane darren That's, you were going to say something yeah then, i just yeah. want 
Yeah, I just want to raise something. What did you think of the ending where his, uh, where the, the guy, and I forgot the guy's name, but the guy who, who died in real life, where his character's car just rolled up at the end? What did you think of that? Because I, I felt a bit uneasy about that. I don't know why. So in this film, I didn't, so I probably missed the point because I thought it was Dom's brother who pulled up, not mm. him. Yeah, no, you're I probably that was Dom's right, brother. actually. You might be right, though. Um, so, yeah, if, if, if that yeah. is who it was, I missed the point. I thought it was Dom's brother. No, no, it was, it, it was Paul Walker. Well, it's Carl. Yeah. Well, there you go. Went over, went over my head. <laughs> I'm clearly not a big fan, but right. I don't think I profess to be. Okay, well, let's move on to another fan of the series, Neil. <laughs> well, same old, same old, and even worse. I can't stand it. Is it Dom, whose persona is all about family, it's repeated over and over in all the previous films that he bothered to turn up in, has a brother and he's never mentioned it. Family, huh? The story is told in many clunky flashbacks, in case we didn't get it the first time. Anyway, they fall out. Dun, 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 young Jacob, for that's his name, then grows a foot and a half and two foot sideways and becomes a super spies terrorist, intent on ending the world order because he lost a car race. In previous Fast and Furious movies, physics is used as a guideline. and Loosely. Loosely. With what can be done in reality stretched a bit, or a lot. In Ff9... Physics is ignored and it just becomes more and more stupid. The rope trip just almost ended. I nearly walked can I, out. Can I? What Fast and Furious movies were physics used as a guideline? <laughs> well, then, no, okay, the physics isn't used at all, is it really? But this one doesn't even bother trying. This doesn't even. None of them I have mean, tried. Oh, they do. They do. Do give an, a sort of. They, they try and sort of push it a little bit and you know obviously the catching the person on the car was the most stupid thing i've seen and the tank being able to keep up with supercars but the (laughs) but this one this rope trip magic nonsense bollocks the car catches a rope in its wheel it swings across the other side the weight of the car doesn't make it plummet downwards and somehow ends up on the other side as the rope detaches at exactly the right moment and neither occupant is hurt despite neither wearing seat belts um brilliant it's a it's a deadly it's a deadly thing of me that could destroy the world as we know it gets lost in the jungle so they send a bunch of drivers to pick it up uh, um, absolutely stupid, 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 god-awful film and two and a half hours I'll never get back. And, uh, of course, you liked America, the motion picture. So. <laughs> well, no, actually, I'm, not, I'm probably not going to watch that. I'll probably watch the first third of America, motion okay. picture. I'll watch the first third. I won't watch the other two thirds. Graham. Oh, God, it's a franchise. It's not art. It's a process. You know, you don't go into McDonald's for a finely crafted culinary experience or to have your palate stimulated. I said palate, Neil. Um, <laughs> you go in for the familiarity, the consistency, the complete lack but of there novelty. isn't any consistency. <laughs> it's, whether it's fast food there's or no, fast There's nine. no consistency it's about consistent the whole thing. It's inconsistent. I mean, he's suddenly got another brother. What's consistent about suddenly yeah, got a brother? What's he never said in real life Neil, turns up. Neil, yeah. Neil, I, does your brother say, ever talk about you? <laughs> yes. Can I, okay. can I, talk can about I just him? make a point here? It never says Go in the on. previous film that he doesn't have a brother, does it? Oh, right. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> you see? Yes. Yeah. Darren. Oh, yeah. Darren's says... drunk the Kool Aid. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I think Phil said it. You know, the thing that impressed me most about this film is that the writers know 
that they're writing a franchise. And there's lots of little nods and, and winks throughout the film. God, I hated that. <laughs> However, <laughs> all the science stuff with magnets was 100%. What science? Artistic <laughs> license, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah, and they, they, I just thought. I mean, there are scientists all over the world going. Magnets can be reversed. You can reverse magnets, and things fly away. Pick, from... But it only picks up the bits of metal that it wants to for the film. Yeah, yeah and that's it's true. They use magnets like a tractor beam. Mm, you know, and it can go through a, go through glass and everything without and the, the rest next of it. thing you're going to be telling me. You can't repel most of the way across in Edinburgh. I mean, come on. <laughs> Well, it certainly keeps you socially distanced, doesn't it, if you go across the rooftops? Yeah, I mean, flying a car into space and using diving equipment for spacesuits. I mean, why did NASA think of that? Yeah, I'm not even going to talk any more about the scientific uh, facts or whatever. Lack of. Lack of. It's just all bollocks, yeah. Magnets don't repel steel objects, you know. Um, There are small... Mater- small number of materials that are diamagnetic, but um, yeah, they're not. They don't make cars out of them. So the film made Independence Day look like a documentary. And if you enjoyed the last eight films, you, you won't be disappointed. It didn't make any sense, but it was entertaining. I did, was it? I did. I did like smashy, crashy, bashy. I thought it was clearly uh, not a true fan because there's been nine. Was it? That I actually really, I, really liked. I quite enjoyed Hobbs and Shaw yeah. in a strange and, way. But, okay. Yeah, because the humour was really, really good. Vin Diesel wasn't in it. <laughs> That's yeah. probably it. I am really concerned here in Neil's attitude to this film before I even start. Oh, because God. is it a coincidence that one of the main characters in this film is played by an actress called Michelle Rodriguez? Oh, <laughs> Oh, she's a terrible actress. Oh, yeah. Is she a member of the Latinx community? I think so. Yeah. And right. Jeff's just going to flog that dead horse again. Yeah. Vin Diesel is very fond of saying the Fast and Furious films are all about family, friendship, <laughs> and bonds. Uh, Funny, then, that the weak points of this latest outing, I do side more with Darren and Phil than the two old grouches in the room, <laughs> uh, are all caused by him falling out with family. It's seriously missing Dwayne and Jason. Absolutely. Instead, you have the introduction of John Cena's character, except Cena, like Diesel, is a fairly dour figure. What this film badly needs, other than an editor, I would accept it is too long, is the lightness of tone that Dwayne Johnson and or Jason Statham could bring to it. And also, if you could bring in Vanessa Kirby, even better. If you compare this to the first half of Hobbs and Shaw, you see there the lightness of touch, the fun that they had. You were engaged by the wonderful interplay and script between the main characters. Yes, it was over the top, but this film badly needs that type of over the top. Now, that said, I was entertained by the ridiculous nature of the stunts and even the outer space sequence, which I think could happen. Um, <laughs> ah, yeah, there you go. That probably you know, says more about you than it does no, the yeah, film. No, 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 no. Vsauce just went up into space this week in a giant penis. So, you know, if you want crazy, let's look at that. Yeah, I think he was lampooning um, uh, Austin Powers. Yeah. That one. Uh, Rather than complain about the crazy plot, just what John Cena was aiming to do with his MacGuffin, and and to be honest, does it matter? Just relax and enjoy the stunts. I also love, again, this theme of redemption, which runs through these later films. 
it just desperately needs that lightness of script tone and people who can deliver the lines. So time to make up, Vin. Get Ooh. The Rock and Jason back and let's send the series out on the high it deserves. And I'm with you on your physics. And just get rid of that um, <clears throat> bloke, Vin Diesel. Yeah. So And thanks. all the others. Thanks, guys, for your thoughts on another unforgettable film, F9 The Fast Saga. can be found racing in cinemas and just about everywhere. And I have a bit of stop press for you all as well. They have, earlier today, announced the title of the next film. Are you ready for this? Yep. It's called Fast 10, Your Seatbelts. Oh, God, it's not Fast 10. Before we go over to Darren's dash, let's sneak in a brief review of Stephen Cookson's long-awaited Brighton. I didn't come here to watch the film. Me neither. Now everything's changed. And we haven't. Our little spot. And you get up to any note in it. Remember when we used to go to the picture house? Things we used to get up to in the dark. Don't be a dirty bastard. I mean, with you, you daft mare. <laughs> you won't have the news of the world in the house. You're joking. That's a good breed, Dad. You two are such prats. <whistles> All right, girls. God made women, so why should they be upset about showing a bit of what they've got? He must have been working overtime when he made the... <laughs> that was right out of order. No, that, that was is. out of order, Dave. Sorry, I took the right diabolical liberty there. Back in at the Flicks episode 172, we interviewed Brighton director Stephen Cookson about his film. Since then, Brighton has been shown as the closing film at the Cheltenham International Film Festival and is now available to rent or buy via streaming services. Having finally had the chance to see the movie, I wanted to get the review team's views on it. For those that haven't listened to episode 172 as yet, Brighton is about a gang of older people returning to Brighton where they first met in the 1960s. Times and attitudes have changed a lot since then, but perhaps not for these individuals. So at this point, I would have gone over to Phil and asked for his thoughts on this wonderful British movie and its fantastic cast. But Phil decided to watch America, the motion picture, twice. (laughs) So we will now go to Graham. I will apologise, but it is the first time ever that I have failed to watch That is true. That is true. Well, I enjoyed this. I thought it's very British, very raunchy. And considering the budget, it was surprisingly good. I mean, all the main actors, young and old, were excellent, with Phil Davis and Larry Lamb just seeming to inhabit their characters rather than play them. The Stephen Burkhoff story took a very interesting and unusual twist in the final act. I was very impressed with the social narrative of the film, and, and the comedy was was excellent. Uh, the one that stand out for me was the depth of the characters and their backstory. You really got to understand where the main characters came from and what their motivations were, and the constant switching of time periods was an excellent device. Uh, I loved the cinematography with the 1960s being slightly sepia and the present day being very bright and oversaturated. I mean, all credit to the director, uh, Stephen, for keeping the story coherent while treating us to uh, constant flashbacks. That was no mean feat. If I had one complaint, it was with the scene in the gay club. It looked like very drab, and the clientele looked like extras from the battleship Potemkin. (laughs) (laughs) 
but with that slight niggle, it was an excellent British film. And I don't think a lot of people will get to to, to understand the depth of this film. It, it had a, a lot to it, and I just thought it was great. I enjoyed it. Sorry, I'm still laughing at that joke. The uh, comment. The the film brought back too many memories from the 80s and too many of the people who genuinely talked that way. It was a fantastic film. As if they had uh, these people hadn't stepped out of the 60s. Such a well-told film and almost uncomfortable to watch. But the third act changes and Doreen, played by Leslie Sharp, finally talks to someone about her past. I loved watching Marion Bailey as Dinah, fresh and playing the Queen Mother in The Crown. Utterly horrible. Complain, complain, aggressive antisocial behaviour, complain and then repeat. All had stories but so stuck in a culture where you didn't talk about your weaknesses or your past or things that really needed saying. Better stick to aggressive tripe from the 1960s and 70s, like talking to Jeff, really. I loved it. <laughs> Thank you, Neil. Darren? Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, I was actually a bit scared at how authentic this film uh, felt at times because it it really captured what the British, if you've ever been to the British seaside, what what it is actually um, like. It is for so many of these places, it feels like it's, you know, places which are like stuck in time. Things like sort of, which are like sort of dying and deteriorating. Um, but just like grimy. And um, I always find them really grimy and miserable. And, and this is what they attracted grimy and miserable people. Like these characters here, but, but and this work and the whole sort of run down nature of and this place which is sort of stuck in time. If you if you go to the um, the seaside, it's it's virtually the same experience as if when I used to go back in the seventies. It's it's not moved on. It's hardly moved on at all. And this is what these characters were like. It was just a perfect metaphor. And for, and for God's sake, full marks to the cast who really got into the roles who really came across as this sort of these like you know whinging complaining argumentative Brits uh, who were basically just like to do the same thing year in year out and who didn't like people you know they, they, they really hated you know gays or sort of references to other races in there and these people were just that absolute pain in the arses but they, you know the, the cast really sort of like you know really got into those roles even like the sort of things like you know them wearing uh, the two guys wearing their old teddy boy suits well, was like sort of you know showed just how sort of like you know stuck you know stuck in the past they were and it, it's not a film I would say I actually like really enjoyed and I'm not even sure it was a film you meant to enjoy but it's a film that I think had a lot sort of going for it in, in terms of you know what it was actually trying to get across what these characters were like and it, even as downbeat as it, as it was and uncomfortable, a view, the view has been expressed. But what's that little bit of hope in there? You know, particularly the Leslie Sharp character, where she, um, where you see that she has, sees that chance to change, to change her attitude, to open up to other people and other ideas of it, where she's hugging like the, you know, the black woman and her friend is like stood there, like, you know, exasperated, like, what? What's going on? So it did have that little bit, you know, maybe there is still hope that people can sort of change about it. But yeah, I was, um, well, you could tell it was based on the stage play and it was quite sort of, like I say, it was very realistic and very British for, um, you know, for, for good and bad reasons, probably. But one thing I, I will add though, it's kind of, I do wonder what the audience 
for this film is? Is it people who are basically going to sort of realise that these are satires of these people? Or are there going to be people who are going to be sat there going, yeah, they're right, them. Yeah, I'm with them. Yeah. You know, so I do, I do have that sort of wonder. <laughs> That's a danger, uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> now that, that is a really, really good point, which I want to pick up on, certainly when I talk about this. And this is where I think... Stephen Cookson has taken a, a brief 25-minute play and turned it into a full feature film. Obviously, he's added bits to it. But these characters which have been expanded, you could get the Afghanet syndrome, whereas yeah. you've got a character that expresses repellent views, but a certain percentage of the audience relate to that and almost cheer them on. It happened in the 80s with loads of money, the character there. Yeah. Uh, but what I think he does... He just steps back from going into that till death is the parts syndrome. And he makes them almost grotesque in his directorial style. There's odd angles, the close up mm. on them, on some of their more disgusting habits, eating, for example. And it distances the viewer from these characters. Now, I kept being reminded of Beryl Cook and some of Beryl Cook's paintings. And I'd lived in Plymouth for years, so I was surrounded by her imagery. And I always found that fairly creepy then, and I found it even more so here. So that, to me, kept that distance. Also, the fact it's set in 2005, when Blair had just opened up uh, to Europe to allow people to come in, which would have sent these people up the wall. So it's the beginnings of that journey to Brexit in there and, and these individuals. And I thought that was balanced and handled extremely well. And then you had the flashbacks. And again, in those flashbacks, you see these youths being victimized by others, whether they're being beaten up in the toilet, beaten up in a borstal, or bullied in school. And that's reflected in the way they pick on people they think are inferior to them, whether it's ethnic minorities or gays. And again, it distances you from the characters and you can't fully sympathize with them. I think full credit to the cast for attacking these roles in the way they do. I said when we interviewed Stephen that Larry Lamb is a force of nature, and that certainly comes across. Marion Bailey has some of the funniest moments, while Leslie Sharp and Phil Davis give quieter, more reflective performances. And let's not forget the young cast, who are all great. And for me, Hannah Stewart, I thought, was a real find. And... I'm making a prediction. I think that young lady's going to go far in British mm. cinema. Mm. So I think it's a fascinating study of a group of people who are out of time and place. In other words, they're Brexit voters. That's a good review. I mean, I, th there was also the bit where they their recollections of the past didn't include all those things that happened to yes. them. Yeah, it was yeah. like this was this this Nirvana. Well, it wasn't. No. Um, it was, it was just as bad. It was, um, you know, this isn't a pass, the rose tinted spectacles and all that. It's just, yeah, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. So Phil, I'm leaving the last word to you on this. You haven't seen it based on everything we said. Would you now go and watch it? Yeah, absolutely. It sounds, it does sound really good. And I'm just a, a bit ashamed that I didn't manage to get around. No, to it. no, no. It's just one of those things. That was Brighton. Thank you once again, Stephen, for your time talking to us about your film. Let's go over to Darren's Dash for some other recommendations. My first recommendation uh, this month is the Fear Street trilogy, 
which dropped on uh, Netflix a few weeks ago on three consecutive Fridays. So he didn't have long to wait between the uh, the three films. It's been called a Stranger Things movie for adults. It's, I actually think it's more like a Stephen King uh, movie, which is what the Stranger Film TV series was based on anyway. It's basically set in a small town that's um, divided between the, uh, the haves and the have-nots. You've got your, your, your posh school and then your run-down school. It's a town that basically has a history of serial killers and mass murders throughout the centuries, and even has a legend about a witch's curse hanging over it. Now, the first film, that one's set in 1994, and it's where a bunch of kids accidentally awaken the curse of the witch, who basically sends uh, serial killers from the past after the uh, children. So they have to basically sort of, you know, go on the run and try to fight back. The second film carries on this saga, but it takes place mainly back in a massacre back in 1978. And then the final film goes back even further to the start to where the curse actually started back in 1666. So you've got this long, this actual storyline running through the three films, but you've also got these flashbacks, which as the films goes on, you learn more and more about what actually has happened in this town. And I absolutely loved the hell out of this film. There are lots of um, horror film homages, lots of bits of the the slasher movies, and also to more contemporary uh, films, which are set in the sort of like the um, the early uh, American experience uh, time. I thought this was actually wonderful. The young cast did a really, really uh, great job, especially the uh, lead, Kiana Madeira, who I thought was absolutely wonderful. I hope she gets some really good um, opportunities uh, rise out of this. This was a really fun trilogy, and the films looked really good. It was very gory in places. The first one especially had lots and lots of jump scenes. I thought this was an absolute riot of a movie. It doesn't seem to have like done as well with a lot of critics who sort of thought it was just recreated stuff in the past. I thought it was a great homage, a great story, a great story. And if nothing else, it's worth checking out these three films for the soundtracks alone. Absolutely wonderful. Had a real blast with these films. All right, that's uh, one on my list to watch. I haven't got round to it yet because my wife's a wimp. Phil, you've seen this, haven't you? I have, yeah. It's really interesting, actually, because I really liked the fact that it was like an event, this whole sort of three films released a week apart. And that actually saved it for me because I enjoyed each film more as it went along. So the first film I thought was completely okay and fine. It had its good moments. It was really brutal. But it's doing a lot of heavy lifting in terms of setting up the the storyline. And if they'd release these films, say, like a year apart or something, like a normal kind of release cycle, I'm not so sure that I would have been so fussed or, you know, would have really remembered it and been interested in watching the second one. Each film grows, and by the time we got to the third film, I was just really impressed. I thought it really paid off everything that it set up. Like, the first film's kind of like a, a Halloween Michael Myers sort of homage. The second film's Friday the 13th. And the third film is almost like um, something like The Witch, which obviously is a, a newer film. There's lots of other references and things throughout, but the way that all the storylines tie into each other, and there's even sort of visual cues that they repeat across the films as well that are really good. Yeah, I really liked it. And the soundtrack that Darren mentioned is amazing. The 90s film was like the soundtrack to my teenage years. was amazing. And in the second film... I really loved what they did is the film opens in the 90s 
before it flashes back to the 70s. So in the 90s, you get Nirvana's cover of The Man Who Sold the World. And in the 70s, you get Bowie's original. Um, and they did lots of cool little sort of bits like that. Um, so something that definitely grows and you have to watch them, I think, fairly close together so that you mm. are really following the story and the threads that go across all the films. Well, that works for me. Uh, Graham and Neil, would you watch those? Are you no. kidding? Back to you, Darren. Okay, so the next film I've, uh, I actually saw this in a uh, cinema, if you remember what those are like. And this one was called Freaky. And it's directed by Christopher Landon, who directed the Happy Death Day films. And he also directed the sadly underrated Scout's Guide to the Apocalypse. This one is a remake of sort of the Freaky Friday films, which you can probably get from the title. Uh, and those films are well, basically where you would get an adult and a child who would um, switch bodies. And this time, though, it's getting a, a little bit of a slasher edge to it in that you've got a teenage girl who's been attacked by a serial killer wielding a magic dagger, and they actually switch bodies each other. So the teenager in the ends up in the serial killer's body and has to go on the run from the police, while the actual killer is in the young girl's body and then uses that to go on a killing spree at the school. I thought this was something which probably didn't have the, uh, the concept, didn't have the legs to last an old film, but it does. And basically because it's a really, really fun movie, it's got a lot of a happy death day type vibe to it. And the great thing about it is um, you've got Vince Vaughn, who basically has to play the scary serial killer and then have the uh, freaked out uh, teen. And he really, really seems to be having a blast making this movie. He really gets into the whole, doing the whole female uh uh, mannerisms and everything, even flirting with a young uh, lad as, as well. And then you've got Catherine Newton, who basically, when she put, when she actually has to be, play being the psycho, she is really good. She really pulls it off and has this like really scary out there look about her. It's a really fun slasher movie. There's lots of slapsticky moments and scenarios, but overall, there's some real drama at the time. The killings as well, and there's a lot of them, are, are weirdly fun. And that's basically because most of those who actually get killed are actually the um, the tormentors of the young girl when she was a teen. You get creepy teachers, you get the it girls, you get the lecherous jocks, who all get their sort of uh, upcomings. And so there's a little bit of a hint of the empowerment subtext in there where you basically get the young girl finds that she's got this power she didn't have before when she's in the male body and at the same time her female body is able to take a stand because it's got a serial killer um, personality in there this one's a really fun movie and is really worth checking out i was really impressed with this really funny very gory also very tense and dramatic as well yeah i i would agree i I'm a huge fan of Landon's Happy Death Day movies, and and this definitely has the same vibe, although it is a lot gorier. Vince Vaughn, as you say, having great fun playing the two roles, but Catherine Newton stood out for me yet again. I mean, she was brilliant as the murdered daughter, only in one brief scene in Three Billboards, and here she gets to play a normal, fun teenage girl, and she plays the psycho not by going over the top, quite the reverse, almost locking in on herself. Mm. And it just makes it scarier. It's a great film. Well worth seeing. Phil, what did you think? Yeah, I like this as well. So it's interesting. Because what I like about horror films quite a lot is that they tackle subjects that are quite difficult, but they're kind of in the subtext. So the Fear Street films we just talked about, 
had this whole discussion about rich versus poor and the acceptance of homosexuality across sort of different times. This one actually has a subtext about the acceptance of trans people as well, I felt. And they kind of do approach that fairly sort of mm. head on in one particular scene. And I think that's really interesting that they tackle that. But to Neil and Graham, I would say that this is the sort of entry-level horror film that's the kind of thing that if you are worried about watching a horror film because you're going to be scared and what have you, this, I think, fits the bill. Because it's bookended by you know, slasher film horror and some really fun inventive deaths. But in the middle, it's just hilarious. Vince Vaughn uh, trying to prove that he's actually a teenage girl is probably, you know, one of the comedy moments, you know, of the year. So, yeah, I thought it was lots of fun. Give it a go, guys. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I saw Happy Death Day too, uh, and I enjoyed that. I thought that was fun. Yeah, mm. Landon's a, a, a great filmmaker. I want to go back to what Phil was saying there about that trans sequence. And what that reminded me of as that was playing out, there's an old 1992 movie uh, starring Alec Baldwin and Meg Ryan called Prelude to a Kiss. And the whole thing, it's again, it's another body swap film, but it doesn't get the traction or the mention that Freaky Friday does. But it was made at the height of the AIDS crisis, and it was sort of making a point in that way and that whole sequence just brought back all those memories of Prelude to a Kiss to me I, just lightness of touch I thought absolutely tremendous the way it played out yeah excellent choice Darren what have we got next? Well the next one is a, um, a small independent movie called Dinner in America now this one is exclusive to uh, our old video they have their own streaming site and they also have a, an add-on channel on uh, Amazon Prime so you can get it on there um, quick tip as well you can actually get seven days free <laughs> so if you just want to watch, use it to watch this film um, you, then you can sort of do that and not get charged for it this film is a, basically about an aggressive uh, punk rock si singer who's um, on the run from the police for uh, trying to pull some uh, scams to uh, fund his band. And while he's on the run, he ends up meeting this really nerdy, young, socially awkward uh, young lass uh, who works in a pet shop. She uh, rather bravely invites him to dinner with a very suburban family. And it turns into this awkward dinner scene. Unknown to him at the time, it turns out that she's actually a really big fan of his band and she's actually been writing to him and sending um, basically naked Polaroids to her and stuff. And the two of them, because of this, and they end up forming this really odd couple bond. It's not quite the cliche that it sounds like, but it's, she finds a bit of her identity and a bit of her um, sort of um, personality through hanging out with him. And he also sort of finds someone to actually care about other than himself, he uh, he starts um, uh, standing up for her when she's uh, getting bullied and stuff. The um, actors, um, Kyle Gaynor and Emily Skeggs, have so much chemistry. It was really fun to watch them. And it's a really good sort of, you know, developing movie as it goes along. It's also about outsiders, even though they're very, very different people coming together and having a um, us against the world type um, attitude about them. I, I thought this was absolutely really fun movie, really funny in places. It just had that sort of like um, independent movie type vibe to it and a little bit of a, a punk rock sensibility. I absolutely loved it. In fact, I would say that this might be so far one of my favourite movies of the year. I really do recommend, you know, going to that little bit of um, extra effort and checking this out on Arrow. If you like things which are sort of like a little bit punk rock and, uh, you know, uh, I, I really recommend this really cracking movie. 
Oh, no. That's on the list. Yeah, Phil, I take it you haven't seen that one? No, I don't have that channel. So, yeah, like Graham says, it's going to have to go on the list. Yeah, okay. And one more from you, Darren? Okay, the last one is The Tomorrow War, which is an action movie that was supposed to have had a cinema release before all the unpleasantness, uh, but it's ended up going straight to streaming on um, Amazon Prime. And it's uh, basically starring um, uh, Chris Pratt, sci-fi action film where during the, uh, the World Cup, uh, a bunch of time-travelling uh, soldiers coming through a time portal uh, onto the middle of a pitch where the whole world's watching. And they've come from the world uh, from the year uh, 2051, where Earth is losing a war with aliens and they're asking for help from the human population and asking for reinforcements. So the governments from all over the world basically send armies back through this portal to 2051 to help them basically fight in this losing war. But the war goes really, really badly and the casualties are heavy. So citizens find themselves being conscripted to join the fight for really mysterious circumstances of why they're chosen. And they basically, if conscripted, they have to go and fight for a week in the future. And one of them being a school teacher played by Chris Pratt. Now, this film was absolutely slated by a lot of critics. It had a really rough ride. I, I personally think uh, the people are trying to get at Chris Pratt at the moment. He seems to be the one that the cancel culture are basically um, eagerly awaiting him saying something wrong so they can pounce on him for various reasons. And it's true, this film is very derivative. It's basically got a bit of Starship Troopers in there, a bit of The Thing, a bit of Independence Day. There's even a bit of World War Z in there. I personally enjoyed it. <laughs> I found it a really fun story. The build of this scenario in the first hour is really, really well done. It's really paced well. If you go through all the training and all the little things about the war, and then when they go into the future, the threat and the menace builds really get until you actually see the aliens. I personally really, really enjoyed this. There was uh, a lot of big action, really impressive uh, scenes. The designs of the aliens was um, really impressive. I think a lot of these films, the design of the aliens really sort of... Uh, so a lot of films you get where it's just all like these big massive with tentacles and, and stuff. And these were more sort of reptilian. And there were actually lots of really f um, fun jump scares in there. I was entertained for it. There was a few personal family bits with Chris Pratt, which I didn't really buy into. And when you get the, he, uh, the scenario of how they start to fight back, it wasn't convincing. It was also a really strange movie in where you think you've come to the climax of a film. And then all of a sudden you get another um, half hour where the film takes a completely different attack but generally speaking i thought this was a, a, a just a really fun friday night with a couple of beers movie the special effects were great i, I like the story it, it did what it needed to be done to be a, a fun action movie it looked good and yeah i really enjoyed it and like i say it's on amazon prime so i think this is you know really worth in, you know going into it it's certainly a lot better than the um to Zack Snyder film with the zombies in Las Vegas from the other week. It's far superior to that. Really fun movie. Okay, Phil? I absolutely hated it. It's <laughs> awful. It's in a horrible, horrible rubbish film, and I want to swear about how much I hated it. I mean, my review on my site just turns into a massive rant, but I obviously, you know, everyone different opinions, and I'm glad that you know, somebody gets something out of it and enjoyed it, but I just thought it was just dire. I think it's got a really clever high concept plot and it's just really badly done this whole thing about it being derivative you know it's let's take the setting of edge of tomorrow mix it with the monster design of a quiet place 
have Starship Trooper World War Z type fights where have some mashup of War of the Worlds and the Thing as like a, a storyline to that in there as well. And then we'll put some really unconvincing family drama like we have in the Taken film at the beginning and end. I was just so frustrated. I mean, it's just really sloppily made as well. Like the opening bit that Darren mentioned where we're in Qatar World Cup 2022. And because that for me is just fairly unconvincing in an American movie, but an American family are watching the 2022 Qatar World Cup um, and they're having a big party around it. The football that they've got on display is less realistic than the future soldiers that come out of a wormhole on the pitch. And, hmm. and then about 20 minutes later, they start explaining about how when you go through the wormhole, you, you're five or 10 feet above the ground, so you have to be prepared for a drop. But that's not what happened at all when they appeared to the, you know, to the, to the whole world. And they keep doing that throughout. They like create a rule and then break it. And it got so bad that anyone who's prepared to explain this to me, he has an argument with his father, who's J.K. Simmons, literally five minutes after they put his birthday on the screen because he's been drafted for the Tomorrow War. And his birthday is in 1982. He then has an argument with his father about how his father left them and his father says it was because of the trauma that he suffered during the Vietnam War, which (laughs) ended in 1975 and the US pulled out of it in 1973. And I was really confused. And I actually paused the film and I was like, there's no way, like, I'm sure it was 75. And then I was like, how is that a thing? And there's a collection of images about the reaction to this issue and there's a Gordon Brown as one of the world leaders, like shaking somebody's hand, like, you know, like you get footage from like the news channels or have you. Uh, what? Why is Gordon Brown in there? It's like, would you rather bodger? You know, those are really, really like picky things. But I was so unengaged and fed up with it. But I kept spotting these stupid things. Like when he's told to go and collect 12 blue vials from this lab that are vitally important, but he picks up a, a block of 15. And I'm like, well, that's clearly like what you could have like got the right prop or changed the script. But then the whole premise in itself is we're going to ask for people from the past to come to the future and die for our war because we need to do some science stuff. But we couldn't just tell the people from the past about the science stuff. And then the very, very last 30 minutes of the film, which Darren sort of mentioned, is like you think the film's finished, but then you get this extra 30 minutes, completely makes the everything that went before pointless because everything that went before doesn't matter at all because they could have just done that in the first place and it would all have been fine. So, okay. yeah, I, I hate it so much that I've had another rant about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm more confused than ever now. Uh, Graham, did you, did yeah, you see it? Yeah, I saw it, and I saw it, and it doesn't make any sense, but it is fun, you know? I think that I like the alien. The alien design was great, and they were so fast, and, yeah, okay, they were a rip-off from the uh, the creatures in A Quiet Place. But I like the switch at the end because, although they've got the resources of the planet, and they ask some 12-year-old kid who's into volcanoes. You know, and, and you yeah. didn't like Fast and Furious 9. Yeah, yeah but yeah. I, I mean, uh, I had actually followed 
uh, Darren's instructions to the letter. I had had a couple of cans of beer and it was a Friday <laughs> night and yeah. I was, you know, just sat in front of the telly and maybe if I watched the Fast and Furious 9, I'd be going, wow, that's amazing. He's got a brother we never knew about. You know, it, it's fine. It's fun. You know, it's on Amazon Prime. You're not going to, you know, it's not going to be uh, Citizen Kane, is it? It's, it is a Friday night film with definitely two beers to start with. Oh, at least. That's where I went wrong. Yeah, obviously. and a whiskey chaser. Uh, Neil, I take it you haven't seen it, have you? No, no. No. Okay. Well, Darren, you've yeah. done something on, on with your dash this month you don't normally do, and it's been like the rest of the show. Split is down the middle. In the time of that review that I've just gave review I've just heard, you could have watched Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Sure. And yeah. I would have preferred if I'd watched that than this, but hey... Sorry. Okay. Right. Sometimes oh. that spleen needs to be vented. Oh. That completes my dash for the month. So, out of all the films that we've reviewed today, what would you guys rate as your film of the month? Neil? I'd love to say Brighton, but Black Widow was so much fun. I'm going to go with Black Widow. Okay. Uh, Graham? Uh, American Emotion. No, no. <laughs> it would be Black Widow as well, yes. Okay. Uh, for me, uh, Luca. Yeah, I'm going to go with Luca as well. And Phil, what's your choice? I thought that actually, with the exception of the Tomorrow War, all of these films are enjoyable in different ways. And I normally am a huge Marvel fan. I am a huge Marvel fan, but I'm going to go for Luca as well. Luca it is. Well wow, done, Luca. Luca. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another at the flicks is in the can. Careful with that iron, Neil. You don't know where it's been. Yes, I do. Stroking it has helped me win many golf tournaments. Uh, I thought you used it for making clothes straight, <laughs> providing it's hot enough. <laughs> you lot are off your meds again. <laughs> I certainly are. There are coded messages in there. And to everyone else, thank you for listening and goodbye.